Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Nick Shedd, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I guess we should explain how we connected to you. And, and Kevin, since this is more your connection than mine, do you want to explain how we connected to Nick? Yeah. So David, who I'm, I'm your cousin. Yes. Yes. He lives in my neighborhood. So my middle son and David's younger son are pretty much best buds. So I see David at the bus stop every day. We've seen him walk around the neighborhood and your name came up. I, I can't remember. I think it was the Astros were in the World Series or about to be in the World Series or and he mentioned that his cousin worked for the Astros like oh wow that's cool and we started talking about you and then I, you know he kind of knew I had a podcast or we had a podcast of course you know it's a we right Paul that's um, right. and that's how we kind of connected to get you on so we appreciate you uh, taking the time yeah absolutely yeah D- David's you said David's mom is the sister of your dad or did I mess that up yeah. Yeah. David's mom is, is my dad's sister. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, so we lived a hour and a half apart and we saw each other on every holiday. So you're, you're, you're as tight as first cousins can be. And I can't imagine you have like 50 first cousins. You probably have a handful. Uh, yeah, I've only got uh, a small handful on my mom's side and, and that's all on my dad's side. My wife actually does have over 50 first cousins. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my wife is Italian. Uh, and so she has like 38. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot yeah. to keep up with. We had to have no kids at our wedding for that reason. <laughs> yeah. It's weird which weddings you get invited to, right? <laughs> well, like all, all of her first cousins now have kids. So now we're talking about adding an extra 300 people to our wedding that we <laughs> don't know most of. So, <laughs> but you, you are married now. Yeah. We, we got married about four years ago. Okay. Congrats. We'll, we'll talk about that more. All right. So you grew up in Fairfax County. What, what high school did you go to? WT Woodson high school, the Cavaliers. Are they uh, known for any particular sport? Oh, they were at the time. Um, lacrosse, soccer uh, were the big ones up and down in, in football. Um, basketball was good. So 2005, my junior year, uh, we won districts and I believe it was 10 different sports. Holy um, cow. Wow. Yeah, we had a we had a powerhouse year my, my junior year. Yeah, and that that's not just like three or four kids that are awesome. That's that's a bunch of kids that are playing really, really well. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. I think around that time we won. Um, it, it was a couple of years before I got to high school. We won back-to-back state championships in lacrosse. And I think while I was there, I want to say we won it in uh, women's soccer, uh, women's lacrosse, maybe maybe more than once. It's been a long time now. I can't remember it all. All right. So uh, I imagine when you were a much younger, like eight or nine years old, you, you were playing sports. Where you lived, was it congested or was it pretty spread out? Very congested. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I actually left Northern Virginia, not to be a a Debbie Downer, but um, like I had a job after college that was six miles from my house. It took me 45 minutes to get there. So uh, I couldn't do that anymore. But yeah, yeah. there was um, from a, a, a sports perspective, like there's any sport you could possibly want to play. You had your choice of a lot of different leagues that you could join. I mean, everything was accessible. What was your first sport? Uh, first one, if you don't count the gymnastics that I think was more babysitting, uh, that my parents put me in, uh, probably 
football, eh, probably T-ball. I think I started football, wrestling, and T-ball all around the same time, around six years old. Yeah, that that seems like a reasonable age. They're, they're kids starting at, at age two now in some sports. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, you definitely can't start football that young. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I've worked with young kids before, and, and I, I don't know. People might hate me for making this blanket statement, but I think up until like nine or ten years old, the attention span is no more than 25 minutes. So if you're going to, at least in my setting in a strength and conditioning world, work with kids, you've got to find ways to make it fun and competitive and obstacle courses and random challenges. It, it's not going to look like a professional athlete's session because you can't get their attention past the warm-up. Yeah, if you get 25 minutes from a kid, you're doing something. Most adults don't pay attention that long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, why those three sports, football, wrestling, and uh, t-ball? Um, I, I don't know how I got into t-ball. I liked baseball. I played it up until my eighth grade year. Um, wrestling, my dad was on the U.S. Olympic team for judo. And oh, he was a wow. national champion in judo and sambo. He used to tell me stories about um, like choking people out and like breaking their arms and stuff. And I think that scared me too much as a at a young age. So I chose wrestling instead. And uh, I just always wanted to play football. My my older brother's about two years older than me, so he started. He was one grade ahead of me in school. He started everything a year before I did, and I just kind of followed. Yeah, your your dad with judo and those stories was. Do you think he was trying to scare you and let let, let you know who the alpha was in the house? <laughs> I don't think he needed to. I mean, <laughs> I've seen him catch flies out of the air. No joke. Many times in my life, his hands move extremely fast. Um, I always knew growing up. I didn't have to question that. So when you when you say with his hands, you're saying like clap them out or like snatch them with one hand. Just grab them with one hand. <laughs> He'll tell you actually when I when I was in high school, it was a challenge that my friends liked to do while my dad would be sitting there eating dinner. They would try to choke him out and see if if they could even get him to stop eating food. What? So did you did you stay away from martial arts your whole life, or did you ever dabble in it? No, I actually started jujitsu about uh, a little bit, probably about a year and a half ago now. Um, okay. I only did it for eight months, got hurt twice, and then started this job. And with all of our COVID protocols, I haven't been able to go back. But um, jujitsu, and I, I did a little bit of judo as well, picked that up during COVID. That's cool. How old is your dad now? Ooh, uh, he just turned 68, I think. Do you think you could take him? He'll tell you he's he's still got it once. Um, I don't know. He's he's had I think nine knee surgeries. He's had back surgery, hip replacement, double knee replacement. Uh, he's he's not the athlete he used to be. But I, I don't think I'd try yet. Well, it's not fair. You know where his weak spots are, right? You can go for the knee. <laughs> Bye, Dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not but, you do that. But he still has old man strength, which is a real thing, and he's got tricks. You know, he's got life experience, so. <laughs> he probably has uh, 10 moves right off the bat that you you don't know what to do with. <laughs> they might not even be judo. They might not even be fair, but he'll find a way to win. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pressure points all over the human body. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, so what sport did you really gravitate to growing up? Football. Um, yeah, I stopped wrestling in high school because I got tired of losing weight, and oh. uh, I wanted to play football in college played division three football at Averett university. 
um, was a, a linebacker and a fullback during that time. And w- did you uh, did you gravitate to defense or offense? More defense, um, but I didn't really get along with with my coach my junior year, so I said, "Find me a new position." And they put me on offense. Huh. All right. Yeah, there's something about playing defense where there's a reckless abandon that you can't afford on offense. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe I maybe I had too much reckless abandon. I don't know. Um, but offense playing fullbacks nice because you basically get to have a running start to to be. It's like being a lineman with a running start, and I felt like there was an advantage there. And and you, you do know what's coming, and you do know where your teammates are are going to be. Yeah, exactly. Except sometimes it's your job to keep the quarterback from getting hit. And if you mess up that job, everybody sees it. Yeah, when you do it really well, it goes unnoticed. When you don't do it well, the whole world knows. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean this in a, in a good way, too. Nick Shedd is a great linebacker or fullback name. I appreciate that. I mean, it really is. Nick Shedd, starting linebacker. I mean, that sounds tough. <laughs> you know, you know, funny thing is we – um. At a D3 school, we didn't have the money to just get new jerseys all the time, that kind of stuff. So um, when I switched to fullback, I needed to have an eligible number so I could catch passes. And uh, my jersey was too small. And so uh, it actually – I tried to wear my jersey for one game, and we had to cut down the sleeves because my arms were going numb. So I had to pick a new number. And the only eligible numbers that were available were in the 90s. And you don't see anybody but D linemen wearing numbers in the 90s. Actually, didn't even know at that time that that was an eligible number to, to catch a pass. Um, so I was number 90 as a fullback. I actually wore that with a lot of pride. I, I like that. It's like That's being cool. an outcast. Yeah, it's like Bernie Kozar back in the day was number 19. Nobody wore 19 as a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so uh, were you just lifting like there's no tomorrow when you were a young kid? Um, I started my junior year of high school. So my junior year, I got a speed trainer who actually used to be a strength and conditioning coach for the Redskins and the Giants. Um, He convinced me to start eating and to start lifting more. Um, Between my junior and senior year, I grew about six inches, uh, went from weighing 155 to 205, Um, just hit a big growth spurt during that time. And then really, really took to it uh, going into college and, um, I was probably the most meathead kid on the the college football team. I loved the weight room more than anything else. Does that make you a meathead? Just loving the weight room? <laughs> I call myself a nerdy meathead. You know, I I still like to to operate with some level of intellect at times, but <laughs> I enjoy working out. Well, so you, before your senior year of high school football, uh, how how many hours a day would you lift? Um, like, like in my senior year or, or before I really like, started. like the stuff, like two a day summer camp or, or, or actually before su- summer camp, before two it, a days. How much it really got camp? into, it got up to about 10 training sessions a week. Most of them were about two hour, hour and a half to two hours long. Um, three of those were speed sessions and the other seven were, were lifting, um, in retrospect, I should have focused a little bit more on my recovery. I probably would have been a, a better athlete, but I just cared about being as big as I possibly could. So you you were two of five your senior year. How how tall were you? Uh, I'm five ten. Okay, so you're your average height, but you're you're building a ton of muscle 
And by the time you were a freshman in college, did you how much did you weigh? I went in at about 210, but uh, during camp, this was a time when the NCAA still allowed three a days. So mm. um, we would wake up, have breakfast, have a one hour practice, um, have lunch, film sessions, meetings, whatever, have a three hour practice, come inside. We would get a, a Powerade and a meal replacement bar while we watched film from practice number two and go back out for a three hour practice. We had seven hours of practice a day. Um, I lost a lot of weight during that camp. I think I finished at about 185. But uh, by the time I got to my senior year, I was sitting at about 235, 240. And you're talking about that much practice, and I, I get the NCAA rules were different back then, but that's Division three football. I don't think most people, a casual football fan, understands how much uh, kids are, are dedicating to, to football at all levels. Yeah, it's, it's very much serious business. Um, I don't think the lifestyle is all that different. Uh, from any other division. Uh, I mean, obviously there's, there's probably less perks. It, there's less luxuries involved, um, but it's still, it, it's a six, seven day a week job and you have to be a student and then you have to go to practice. You have to come back and be a student at night and get your work done. I mean, it's, it's pretty rigorous. Yeah. And your, your locker room is not nearly as nice as Alabama's locker room. Not quite, not quite. <laughs> And, and the weight the weight room is probably not as expansive or as nice. No, um, no, not. I don't think anything is as nice as Alabama. Um, but you know, you play D three football because you enjoy playing. I, I think you know it's funny to at at, at the freshman year, most guys still believe they're going to end up in the NFL in, in Division three, and then um, you know, there's like one or two every year that that end up there, but few and far between. Yeah, I'm, I'm a uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, and one of our starting five offensive linemen is a Division three guy. But, yeah, it's, it, it happens, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, for sure. And it, we used to play, go ahead. No, go ahead. We used to play Mount Union my first two years, and I, I want to say my freshman year when we played that, and they were like 128-2 and two under their head coach. And uh, they had a couple guys go to the NFL. Pierre Garçon played for, I think, eight years for the Redskins and the Colts. We played against him. Yeah, he was a, a heck of a receiver. Yeah, yeah, he was nice. It, it probably didn't seem right him playing at Mountain Union, though, as good as I imagine he was his junior and senior years. No, he destroyed us. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't very fun. <laughs> How did you end up at Avery? Um, I had been going around looking at different schools with my parents, um, trying to get recruited, and uh, there there was not nothing that really interested me a whole lot from either a recruiting standpoint or from a school standpoint. And I don't know, I went down and I visited Averitt and um, I just fell in love with the place. It was a really small school. There's actually less people there than my high school. And um, I wouldn't have changed that. Looking back, I wouldn't change that for the world. It's, I think if you're looking at, at what school you want to go to, um, but small schools provide a pretty intimate environment. It has its ups and downs. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business. But you also have much closer relationships, I think, with your friends, with your with your teachers. Um, it, it feels like a small community. Yeah, your classes are what, 12 to 20 kids kind of thing? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what's Averitt known for? Um, gosh, we have, a, we have an aviation program. And an equestrian program, I think those two were, were the big things. And an equestrian, is that 
uh, about riding or is it all things horses? <laughs> I wasn't in it. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I should know that answer. Um, I, I learned the word dressage. I know that's a thing. Um, it's about all I know. Yeah, it's all good. I figured it was small enough. You knew everything about the school. <laughs> nah, not quite. <laughs> right. On. All right. So at what point did you know you weren't going to uh, be in the NFL? Um, so I spent a year after Averett uh, working out with different teams, arena football league teams, uh, Canadian football teams, just trying to get to, to any any open workouts, anything I could to um, to try to get a contract somewhere. And uh, a, a year into it, my parents had said, basically, we'll support you for a year. And if nothing happens by that time, um, then you got to move on. And a year into it, uh, I think it was actually two weeks past that date, um, I found out I got into grad school. And that was it. Yeah. And what, what was grad school? What were you trying to do it with grad school? Appalachian State. So that was um, an exercise science program with a concentration in strength and conditioning. Okay. And you, you love working out so much that you saw a career in it. Pretty yeah. Early. So at Averett, um, there was a couple of guys, a couple of my core professors that started uh, something called the functional movement screen. It's been used globally. Um, and they were, it had started off very small. It actually, the idea behind this, this movement screen, um, started off on a napkin in an airport with these guys. And then they made a business out of it, but they were still teaching. And so I was lucky enough to learn a lot from them as far as more on like the injury prevention rehab side of things, uh, more on the sports medicine side. And then, um, that really just, just lit the fire and, and amplified my interest in that. Um, and uh, yeah, when I couldn't, couldn't be a pro athlete, I decided I want to coach him. And, and, and coaching, you, you knew strength and conditioning was something that you were going to be passionate about the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. I, I've known that for a, quite a long time. I've dabbled in, in other areas, more in like the sports science area, a um, couple other things, but, I really enjoy working with the players the most. All right. So I'm, we don't have to go into a ton of detail here, but I'm, I'm going to take a divergent path here. Kevin, how much do you weigh, Kevin? Uh, 180. He's probably giving himself 15 pounds. He's, he's 6'3", buck 65 maybe. He's, he's super thin, right? Sorry, okay. right, you're 180, Kevin, sure. I, by the way, I weighed 180 the last time my sophomore year in high school. Uh and let's say Kevin wants to bulk and he wants to get up to 200 pounds at a high level. What would you tell Kevin to do? And, uh, and, and he's 52, by the way. I, I would say first thing, go see the dietitian. Um, I have to throw that caveat in there. If you want to be 200 pounds, you have to eat like you're 200 pounds. You should be eating 200 grams of protein a day. Um, you know, the, the rest of your carbon fat intake is going to depend a lot on, on how much exercise you're doing. But I would recommend if you're trying to go from, 150, 160, up to 200 pounds that you are exercising a lot while eating more, or you're not going to like the 200 pounds that you have. <laughs> wow. So that's a good transition to me. I'm uh, Kevin's height, but I weigh 280. <laughs> Let's say I wanted to get to 240. What would you tell me? Oh, you're going to make me be mean. <laughs> no, be mean. It's all good. Oh, be mean, please. You eat what Kevin eats. Kevin, you eat what Paul eats. <laughs> Kevin's got uh, something going on with his genetic code that you can eat what you want typically, right, Kevin? No, I can't. No. So what I do actually, and it wasn't even intentional. It's like almost like intermittent fasting. 
like I don't eat breakfast. So my last bite of food is usually around seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. I don't eat again until afternoon the next day. I don't know if that's good, bad, or or indifferent, but it I feel like it must be something. I will I'll, I'll hold my opinion for for you, but I will say I have had athletes that want to do intermittent fasting. Um, if you are trying to lose weight or lean out, there's probably some efficacy to it. Um, but for a high performing athlete with a rigorous training schedule, you should be eating <laughs> breakfast. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not a high performing athlete. I'm a I'm low performing dad. So, <laughs> so for high, high performing athletes, you, you'd lean more towards multiple meals uh, per day to sustain uh, heavy working out. Yeah, at, at least three or four main meals a day, um, two or three snacks in between that. Gotcha. All right. So, Kevin, I, I, I guess we should trade diets if you want to be 200 pounds. And, and we're going to have to start working out consistently. Today. <laughs> I'm good. Man. Right. So, Nick, how do you, I'm guessing you've been working out since you were a kid consistently. Um, how do you stay motivated? What, what, what gets you excited about it on, on a daily basis? Uh, I go through lulls like everybody else. Um, for me, I've seen with, with like my grandparents' generation and, and other people that, that have um, not had the education or the means to, to take care of their bodies like we have now. There's so much education out there. Um, I'm just kind of committed. Like my, my mom has been a really good example where she doesn't exercise super rigorously, but she has always eaten really healthy. She will go out of her way to do more physical work um, opposed to, to doing less. And um, when I'm her age, when I'm in my sixties, I want to be just as functional as she is. My grandma's now 93 and she's sharp as a tack. And when I'm 93, I want to be like her. I want to be able to party and do whatever the heck I want. I don't want to have to, to rely on other people. And that's probably my main motivation at this point. I think you go through cycles where when you're young, it's like I want to be as big and jacked as possible to get all the girls and, and to be the alpha male. And then if you're an athlete in college or professionally, there's a there's a, a hint of that, but also like I want to perform really, really well on the field or in my sport. And then you get to a certain age where you're like, okay, my body hurts and I just want to feel better again. And I want to make sure I always feel good. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Gotcha. All right, cool. Uh, being a vegan versus a vegetarian versus I'll, I'll say pescatarian versus <laughs> uh, like you eat everything under the sun and, and still somewhat healthy. I don't, I don't mean like ice cream every night. I mean like standard food. Are there, uh, can you be a high performing athlete on any of those diets or in your opinion, are some of those diets better than others? I have to give the caveat. I'm not a dietitian. So, um, there might be, be people that argue with me. Uh, my answer is no, you, well, one in one in a thousand can be a high performing athlete. Uh, and still be a vegan pescatarian fine because you can eat all the fish you want all day long. Um, but a, a vegan or vegetarian, it becomes very, very difficult. People out there will tell you, well, you can get all the protein from X, Y, Z sources, eat all, eat all the legumes in the world. And you know, there, every plant has some source of protein, but the reality is the quality of that protein is not the same. And the volume of 
vegetables that you're going, vegetables, grains, legumes, anything that you're going to have to eat to get adequate protein, uh, nobody does. And nobody eats the variety that they need to get all of the different amino acid profiles that you have to. Um, the majority of athletes I've worked with that have switched from a regular diet to a vegan or vegetarian diet have started wasting away uh, in terms of muscle mass. And within six months to a year, they switch back. <laughs> switch back excuse me. Yeah. And I, there are exceptions to that. I think there was a documentary made about eight guys that played for the Tennessee Titans a few years ago, and, and they all said they were vegans, and obviously they were high-performing athletes. Now, I don't know how long that lasted. Maybe that only lasted for a season for them. There's another guy that uh, we talked to on this podcast, played for the Browns. Uh, he's in his early 40s now, and he he's he's a freak of nature. Uh, he, he can lift just about anything and any exercise in, in a gym. And when you ask him about what he eats, what his favorite food is, he'll say things like broccoli. And I'm like, I don't know how you sustain yourself on, on being a vegan. That, that diet just doesn't seem to be something that can last for a long time. But he's been doing it for eight years, and he still goes to the gym every day. And he's fine. But I guess there are exceptions to everything, but I think the general rule, uh, what you're saying, it sounds right to me. Well, and, and let me paint this picture because we do have a major league player that is, uh, is vegan, but in – professional sports, I'll, I'll just use our context. We're required to provide players a lunch, a pregame meal, and a postgame meal. So if they show up around one o'clock in the afternoon, we've got a night game. They already have three meals laid out. We've got chefs in the back that if players don't like what is put out on the buffet, they can go back to the chef and just say, hey, make me something else. So you now got a ton of resources to help you support that diet and that lifestyle. Um, whereas if you don't have access to that, you're probably not going to spend the hours a day cooking and preparing food that you need to, to actually perform at a high level. Most people won't. Yeah. So if you have the su support staff there for a professional organization like that, it, it's doable, but yeah, uh, average Joe's going to have a really tough time doing that. Correct. And it, people will tell you, you the, I think the number one selling point that I hear from, from people that have become vegans or, or vegetarians, that they feel so much better. Um, and, and I think so much of that just comes from you're eating, you're now eating the amount of vegetables you should have been eating and you're no longer deficient in anything. And that solves a lot of problems. What, what about uh, vitamins in the form of uh, pills? Do you subscribe to that? Uh yeah, they're, they're fine. Um, I usually would prefer like a morning and evening multivitamin over just a, a once daily. Once daily is still better than nothing. Um, but your body can only absorb a certain amount of each one of those micronutrients at one time. So usually spreading it out tends to be a little bit better. Uh, we tell everybody that, you know, the, the food you put in your body comes first, supplements come after that. Um, we still recommend that all of our Baseball players take multivitamins. Got you. All right, let's, so let's go back. You were at App State. Were you a full-time student or, or were you doing it part-time and working? Oh, yeah, full-time. Full-time, yeah. Okay, and then that was a two-year program? Yeah, 2011 to 13. All right, so uh, did, when did you get your first uh, like adult job where you, you were doing 40-plus? So right after grad school, I did a post-grad internship that was full-time. Um, it was a paid internship with the U.S. Army Special Operations Command in Fort Bragg um, as a strength and conditioning coach. And, uh, yeah. hold, hold, and Nick, hold on a second. Those uh -huh. are some elite dudes. Like I, I'm a retired Army guy. 
the, the sock community, they are no joke. You're, you're a pretty young guy and you're down there as a strength and conditioning guy. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a unique experience. It was a lot of fun. Um, no shortage of funding at that level. And, uh, you get to have a, a lot of toys. It's also a very serious business. The stakes are the highest with the military. Uh, as far as the training world is concerned, stakes are higher there than they are anywhere else. Um, but it was a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Well, and you're dealing with all the, the uh, special ops guys, right? SEALs, uh, the para jumpers from the air force, force recon Marines, those, all that. Yeah. There's, there's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to answer this question, but which one's the toughest? I'm not going to answer that question. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy behind him looking through his window about the yeah. table. Well, that, I feel like people base that question off of whose boot camp or whose selection process is the hardest. Uh, the reality is they're all badasses and they all do things that most people couldn't fathom. So I, I to me, it's like arguing over Michael Jordan versus LeBron. Like it's just greatness, and that's, that's yeah. Look, look, that that's my answer too. They're they're all uh, amazing, fantastic people that have unbelievably high uh, pain thresholds. Right. I, I can't I can't comprehend the mental toughness it takes to do what they do um, over weeks or even long days, uh, and yeah, the pain that they put their bodies through. Like they they do things that the average person, if you think about what they're talking about, you're like, that's not possible. Nobody does that, but they, they do it without really uh, a second thought. I would challenge the average person to just put a 60 pound kid on and go through one work day. Yeah. Even, even allowing them to sit in a chair. I don't think most people can do that. Mm -mm. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced most people can't do that. <laughs> All that being said though, Jordan's the goat. Sorry. Go ahead. Keep okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, Kevin is a, a massive, uh, Air Jordan fan. So much so that he had A-R-J-R-D-N on his license plate. Wow. Nice. It was a long time ago. <laughs> he, started, he started liking them right after they won their first championship, and then he stopped. Oh, that's true. That's uh, yeah. so full yeah. of shit. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> so how long were you an intern with uh, Special Ops guys? Uh, I think it was four or five months. It's How big is the staff for strength and conditioning there, roughly? I mean, are you talking about a team of like four or five folks, or is it a lot bigger than that? No. So uh, at that time, there was three three or four full-time strength coaches, uh, two interns, and a dietitian, and then um, also a physical therapist. So a lot of their physical training is outside doing what I would consider non-standard things just because that's what the job entails. Were you guys trying to standardize in a, in a non-standard world? In other words, were y'all in the gym a lot or were y'all just wherever you needed to be and you were doing whatever uh, the training called for? Um, a little bit both. So mo most of it was in the gym. Most of it was focused on um, getting them stronger, more powerful, able to to function within their job. Um, there was a little bit of crossover where we would work with with other departments and, and try to, uh, I guess, bounce ideas off each other, try to create a little more specificity to the environment. Um, but in, in most part, like I'm not equipped to train people for mil military operations. So <laughs> just stayed away from that. Got it. So it was, it was more standard what you guys were putting them through. And then anything beyond that is what the, the military called for. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. 
And were you were you a contractor? Is that the yeah? Okay. Yep. And and hey, what can was? I ask it? Yeah, go can ahead. I ask Kevin. A corny question. Sorry, because I'm good at corny questions. Was there one like badass that stood out in that four or five months, like woman or man, that stood out that you were like, wow, that person right there is is scary. There was a few of them, but honestly, the ones that scared me were not the same ones that the other operators would come up to me and say, hey, that guy's a badass. Some of like the, the most gentle, quiet guys were the ones that they would say, you know, not watch <laughs> out for that dude, but that dude, that that guy has respect around here, you know. I like it. It's usually the quiet one. Yeah. Yeah. They, they let me do some fun stuff. I got to play with some toys. I I feel like I shouldn't say it on air, but I got to do some some fun stuff. So, well, no, all all that's uh, as long as the commander's cool with it. it it's yeah. all cool, man. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, we won't talk about the details of that fun stuff. But there's a lot of fun <laughs> things those guys can do. Too. We'll Absolutely. say there's no shortage of ammo in special operations. <laughs> never, never. That's great. Yeah, in, in fact, I imagine the the pecking order is special ops guys in a combat zone. Uh, and then special op, ops guys in uh, training back in the States. And then the, the combat guys that are conventional get uh, ammo after the training stuff for the special ops guys. Yeah. I'm a conventional guy. That's why I say that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so you were there for a few months and then uh, that had to be weird. Like you couldn't have anticipated most of that experience. I can't imagine. Uh, but what did that lead to? Um, yeah. So right after that, I, uh, my parents had moved to Aiken, South Carolina to retire, and I was looking for my next full-time job. I moved in with them. The school right by their house, USC Aiken, it was a Division II school. Um, at the time, they were ranked in the top five in the country in baseball. I wanted a free place to work out because I had no income, and they didn't have a strength coach. So I went over there, and I bartered with them. I said, I'll be your strength coach for your baseball team if you let me work out in your gym for free done deal. Um, did that for about six months and then uh, moved to Richmond. So before we go to Richmond, why baseball? Because um, I looked online and that was their best team. <laughs> <laughs> did they have a strength and conditioning coach for any of their teams? No, not at the time. They, they do now, um, but they had two athletic trainers, no strength and conditioning coach. Wow. Okay. And all right. So you're in Aiken, South Carolina. You're just, you're biding time until the next thing pops. What popped in Richmond and what brought you here? Um, so Bon Secours Sports Performance, it's a big hospital. You know the hospital system in Richmond. So sure. um, at the Redskins Training Center downtown, uh, that's one of the sports performance locations. So I was a sports performance coordinator overseeing everything going on at that location. Um, we had we grew into having another coach, uh, massage therapist, dietitian, and then worked alongside the physical therapy staff. So walk me through like a typical day or a typical week in that role. That was a tough job um, because it was a new location when I started and I was the only one um, training people. So you have to make your training hours when people are available, which means prior to 8 a.m. and after 5 p.m. So it was pretty much like 14-hour days most days. Um, I was working with everything from kids groups to AAU basketball teams, um, general population, special needs populations. It, it was basically the full gamut at, at that point since it was a new venue. It was like 
take in anybody that can keep the lights on and um, and just grow. And so a doctor said, hey, you need PT and, and Bon Secours, the, the company you work for provided that PT and it could be anybody the doctor sends your way kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the big thing, there's a lot of hospital systems around the country that have sports performance or some kind of fitness training mm-hmm. center available. And the, the big thing is it's usually pretty cheap because the hospital system is not relying on that to make direct revenue. They rely on the downstream revenue. So you're training athletes, an athlete gets hurt, they go see a Bonsecor doctor, they go see Bonsecor physical therapist, and then they come back to you. Um, and so that, that was like the main setup of the of the business. Yeah, it's um, I, the concept of sports performance hasn't been around for that long, has it? No, uh, Nebraska was the first NCAA team with a strength and conditioning coach, Boyd Epley, back, I want to say that was in the 70s when they won a bunch of national championships. Um, the field has, it, it's growing slowly. Uh, well, now it's growing rapidly, but um, now even, even for example, high school strength and conditioning, when I was in high school, it was just your coach. Your coach just told you to go in the weight room, whatever plan he had, that's what they did. But now there's a whole section of this profession uh, of really ho- highly qualified professionals that work in the high school setting. Gotcha. So Nick, who are some of the, some of the studs, I guess, or the, or the guys that or got girls that you look up to in your line of work or in your profession that have done it for a long time, or who are the people that, that you guys look to for new things and, and how things are going to go in the future? Um. For me, a lot of those people are in Europe and Australia. That's where a lot of the really good research comes out of. Um, looking stateside, whew. I don't know. I, there's there's nobody that you that you would know their names. Um, there, there's nobody that's really commercial in that sense. I, I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but throw me a name. Throw me a name. <laughs> Uh, Kier Wenham flat. He yeah. has a, he has a, um, a, a website called, uh, strengthcoachnetwork.com. And it's one of the most highly qualified, uh, websites, um, networks that you can be a part of and, um, tons of like educational materials on there. Lots of, lots of forums and thought sharing and, and that kind of stuff. That's cool. That's cool. And he's actually English, but lives here now. He lives in Richmond actually. Really? Yeah. What brought, in, what brought him to Richmond? He wanted to work in American football, and uh, he had a background in rugby, and he worked at U of R for, I think, a year, and then William & Mary for a couple of years. And he's where is he now? Uh, he's full-time with his with his website. And Oh, wow. Okay. That, he turned that into a full-time gig. Yeah, I think he's doing pretty well. Yeah, good for him. He also got into real estate. He, uh, he bought a house. Paid it off, sold that, bought a four four unit condo unit, and I think he's trying to fix that up. And so he's he's uh, he's a smart guy. He's investing in many ways. He's uh, living his best life, and he's uh, he's diversifying what he's doing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's a it's a big topic of conversation in the strength and conditioning industry right now is um, meeting multiple streams of income because especially when you work in professional sports, at some point you are bound to get let go for, for one reason or next, and you better hope you have something lined up. Gotcha. So you mentioned uh, Europe and Australia is where you, you look for a lot of folks that you would look up to or want to learn from. 
I, I noticed on your LinkedIn that you're uh, pursuing a PhD from the University of Auckland. How, how does that work? Um, so I, when COVID hit, I was trying to actually go to New Zealand to do my PhD there. Um, I traveled there with my last job quite a bit. Um, love the country. And uh, AUT is um, one of the top sport and exercise science schools uh, in the world. And um, that was the intention to move there for like two and a half years, three years with my wife and, and just have fun, go to, go to school and COVID shut down their borders. And so now, um, I, I'm here with the Astros also doing that at the same time. I've been blessed. The Astros have, have given me their blessing to, to use the baseball players for my research because it is mutually beneficial. And, um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I said University of Auckland. I should have said Auckland University of Technology, right? That's yeah, they are two different schools. Yeah. Got it. And so, yeah, so you go to AUT. Yeah. Are, so you're doing it effectively remotely. Are, are you ever going to get to full time there, you think? No, but uh, I might go for graduation or something, but I, I'm a full time employee and full time student. That's got to be tough, right? Pursuing a PhD is, is uh, not something you just do 30 minutes a day. Yeah, no, it's it's supposed to be about 25 hours a week. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly not easy, but at least it's something I'm passionate about. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so the, the gig after sports performance at Bon Secours, where, where'd you go after that? I uh, went to Virginia Beach, worked for Exos. Um, Exos is a big private training company uh, across the, the country, and um, we were working a little bit with uh, with Naval Special Warfare, doing some educational stuff with them, also just working with all kinds of athletes, mostly soccer players, volleyball players. Um, we actually had a world champion sailor at one point, uh, a couple of surfers. Um, and yeah, did that for one year. And then I moved to Pennsylvania, took over as the head of strength and conditioning for the U.S. Women's National Field Hockey Team and did that for three years. So what you're doing, you're passionate about, it sounds super, uh, the, the diversity of people you, you're working with is fantastic. Like a surfer, a sailor, a field hockey player for the U.S. women's team? I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, I think my diverse background has helped me get to where I am today. Um, our industry likes to, to peg people as like a private sector guy versus a, a team guy, or you're like a college football guy. Um I think being able to work with different populations, especially people with people with MS, people with with various uh, physical limitations, it, it's helped spark spark creativity in my mind, um, which has made me a better coach. How much of what you are uh, training people to do is things you've learned along the way versus you creatively trying to uh, problem solve for whoever the individual or the team is? That's really hard to differentiate. Um, I think now in my role, uh, I lean on my experience quite a bit. Um, I lead a, a staff of 12 to, I think this year might go up to 14 or 15 people. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of what I do is traveling to, to our different locations and, and taking a look at a global look at what's going on and then trying to, to apply practicality with, with the science and mesh those two things together. Um, 
uh, it probably goes for the like this for everybody in their career, but like right out of college, you're leaning on your textbooks and and your curriculum to drive everything that you do, and then you start to find that there's other ways to do it. But I, I'm also uh, always just embedded in continuing education, so there's still an educational component for sure. How did you end up with the Astros? Um. So I started looking when I realized I wasn't ever going to get to New Zealand. I started looking for jobs again, and uh, I actually wasn't going to apply to this job because baseball is a very traditional sport, and I hadn't worked in it, and I thought I had no chance. And my wife um, kept telling me I needed to apply. Told her no for about six days, and finally I applied. And then it's like a month-long uh, interview process and got the job. What was, was Houston the only Major League Baseball team that had – an open position? The only one that had an open position at the head level that was publicly advertised. They're not off. They're not always publicly advertised. Gotcha. All right. So, and I imagine it's a full-time year-round gig, right? Yeah. Um, things slow down a little bit when you get into the off season, but uh, in a leadership position, there's still quite a bit of work to do. Rehiring staff, uh, preparing for the upcoming spring training. Um, but it kind of shifts from like a 10 hour, 12 hour day job to a four or five hour day job. Is it, uh, during the season, is it more, uh, thinking about how to make the players physically better or is it more administrative or is it a, a nice mix of the two? Um, so I, I like to look at my role as primarily working on the system, not in the system. Um, I, I try to, but but not sit behind a computer all the time. It's important that I spend time with the players. I will work hands-on with the players um, and get involved in special cases where I need to, but it's my job to make sure that our coaches have what they need to be as, as successful as possible. So it's probably 60% admin, 40% coaching, um, asking questions, talking to different staff members of different departments and trying to uh, facilitate positive change. Hey, Nick, can I throw a couple rapid fire questions at you just around you working with the Astros? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Pound for pound, the strongest guy on the Astros. Oh, God. Hold on. Um, you put him on the spot. Hold on. Hold on. Before, before you answer that, Nick, how does Jose Altuve hit a ball so daggone hard being five foot four or whatever he is? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. So power is force times velocity. Um, and actually what you're looking at when somebody hits a ball is momentum, which is mass times velocity. And it, essentially the velocity that bat is dictated by, um, by how fast you can accelerate it. So, Typically, being very, very big and strong will allow you to hit a ball hard. Uh, but the other side of that velo that power spectrum is velocity. Jose Altuve um, moves about uh, – I'm speaking – we use force plates to measure guys' power, so they do like a, a regular-looking jump on a force plate. Um, his, his takeoff velocity, so as he's leaving the ground when he's jumping, is, I don't know, like six standard deviations above the rest of the organization. He's an absolute freak athlete, and I don't like. We don't preach to our players. You should try to be Altuve. 
we preach to our players, you should get bigger and stronger because Altuve is a unicorn and most guys can't do that. Yeah, and look, for the for the casual listening audience here, when you say six standard deviations, a normal range is two standard deviations, right? You you just went three X the normal range, and, and that's where Jose resides. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's appalling to see. I mean, we actually – so when we test guys on, on our sports science equipment, there's back-end algorithms that will filter out faulty tests so that when we upload them into our athlete management system – um, we're not looking at a bunch of, of bogus numbers. We actually had to change our algorithm to allow his numbers to upload because they were getting filtered out. So basically he's the answer. He's the answer to that question. And you, you don't have to go. So let me ask you this. Hold on. Hold on. I, I didn't mean to interrupt in that way. Get back to your rapid fire. Sorry, Kevin. No, that's okay. No, I, I was going to think it might be Jose Altuve. Is it someone else? The, the, the biggest, strongest guy, I would say, um, at least one of them is is going to be uh, um, Luis Garcia. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have 250 athletes, so I apologize if I'm slighting anybody. But yeah, I know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, so yeah. my bad. <laughs> right, but let me ask you this: so you you being an athlete your whole life, you're now working with guys that are at the top of their profession or the top of this sport. Tell me a time when when one of them did something that absolutely amazed you. Um. So. <laughs> Framber Valdez, he's a, a left-handed pitcher. He had a broken finger during spring training, and um, I was working with him on his rehab, and everybody was like, you know, don't let him go crazy. He was just starting to play catch again. Everything's supposed to be super light. The finger's not fully healed yet. And uh, this is the first day I've ever worked with him. So I, I, like, literally had just started the job, had no rapport with him at all, and he picked up a ball and threw it across our 70-yard turf on a rope right into the side of the batting cages. And I and I was like, Framber, what the heck, dude? And somebody else came over and whispered to me, that was his other arm. So he can throw righty and lefty. He can throw about 85 miles an hour with his right arm. He actually used to pitch right-handed before he switched to pitching left. Wow. I had no idea. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, so here – and this is more of a not even a sports related question. You travel with the team, right? Yeah. Um, no. So no. Okay. As the head of strength and conditioning, I oversee this the strength and conditioning at the major leagues and all of the minor leagues. We have two guys that are embedded with the major league team. Um, so I will travel to Houston. Sometimes I, I'll, I'll travel with the team, um, but for the most part, like I'll meet a team in one location and then go meet another team in another location. Um, because we've got major leagues, triple A, double uh, A, high A, low A, two rookie ball teams, and two teams in the Dominican Republic. Okay, I was gonna I was gonna ask what your favorite ballpark was, but which you still may have. Well, I, people might hate me for this, but the Atlanta Braves ballpark is the only one besides ours that I went to this year, and it is uh, it is a beautiful awesome. ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, unfortunate that you chose the uh, the one team <laughs> that beat the Astros at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got to give them credit though; it's a nice ballpark. It's brand new. Yeah, I, I've been to it. it. is It is a very nice ballpark. And, I, and funny, I'm an Astros fan. I've never been to uh, the Astros park. Oh, come on down! It's an experience. With the roof closed, it gets rowdy. I, I can imagine. Uh, are you in Houston during the season, or are you in Florida during the season because you're going to so many different places? So my home base is here in Florida. Um, and then I, I will go 
I'll go to Houston. I was there for the whole postseason. Um, usually I'll go for like a week at a time and then go to another minor league affiliate. Um, our sports science and strength and conditioning and athletic training has primarily been housed in West Palm Beach. We have coaches, we have sports scientists in Houston as well, um, but we have, we have coaches everywhere. Uh, the goal that we're trying to shift our, our whole organization to is to having our head of nutrition, head of sports science, head of strength and conditioning housed in West Palm so everybody's under one roof. Um, this is where we have spring training. It's where we have our rookie ball teams and it's where we do our long-term rehab. So if anybody is hurt for more than typically seven days, they're going to come to West Palm to carry that out. Yeah, it's uh, most people don't have any clue what the the world's like below the major league level, but it, there's a lot going on there. And if you if you manage that system really well as an organization, you you too can be competitive uh, in the playoffs. Yeah, uh, we pride ourselves in, in not being a money ball team. Of course, we will sign high dollar players, but we believe a lot in player development, which is a blessing for me because we put a lot of emphasis on the importance of strength and conditioning. No. Um, but you ultimately, if you can scout and draft and sign better players and develop more players into major league quality, then they're either going to help your team or they're going to provide trade value that's going to come back and help your team in a, in a roundabout way. All right, this is going to be an unfair question, but what's more important, strength or conditioning? In baseball, strength. Okay. Ah, nice. I, I did not expect a quick, uh, decisive answer. All right. Yeah, right for on. sure. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so when I was uh, coming up and Kevin and I are, were in our early fifties, guys just worked out on their, their upper body. Like it was, it's almost like anything below the waist didn't exist. Like nobody did anything with their legs today. I imagine it's, so, uh, let, let me back up. If you, if you're going to work somebody out for a day, a typical workout, walk me through warming up through uh, a typical workout. Uh Complex answer there. So we do uh, early in the morning, we'll do stretch with our players. If it's position players, we'll basically stretch is, is what they call warm up in baseball. So we'll take them through stretch and then they'll either have a speed session immediately following that or an aerobic conditioning session. And then they go work on their, their baseball skill, whatever it is for that day, the batting cages, defensive work. Our pitchers, similar concept, but we will warm up. Then they throw. They do their throwing program. It's either flat ground or they, they'll throw a bullpen. Uh, and then we do their speed work or their conditioning after that. So all that's done in a block in the morning. And then athletes will trickle into the weight room after that. Um, lifts are usually about an hour long. Um, every guy typically has a prep routine as well. So like if you're throwing in a game that day or e even the position players after all of that, um, when we get towards say it's a night game, they will come back in and do a little bit more, um, to get their bodies ready to go for the game that night. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how important is rest? Cause you'd mentioned that earlier that you didn't have a full appreciation for, uh, recovery. Uh, you ask me, it's really important. You ask the league. We play 162 games a year. So, <laughs> I mean, wow. yeah, I think that's that's pretty telling in and of itself. Um, no, it's it's tough because our conundrum is we are with our players for six or seven months out of the year, and so in theory, if you have a five year contract and you're only training them in the off season, 
uh, you're only actually developing your guys for 50% of their contract. And that's not real fruitful for anybody. So we try to develop our guys, uh, make them physically stronger, more powerful, faster, et cetera, in season. But they also have to perform on game day. If you're in the major leagues, it's a win now league. If you're in the minor leagues, you're getting evaluated every day. You don't want to get sent down. You want to get sent up. Um, so there's a lot of detail, a lot of uh, sports science technology testing that we do uh, to try to dial in our, our prescription of exercise so that we're making guys better, but we're not hammering them to a state of fatigue and they can't perform. Yeah, so uh, performance post-workout is as important as the workout, if not more important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Cal, you're old enough to remember Cal Ripken. I my favorite player of all time. Oh, right. nice. Um, Are you I, had to, I had to school some young players recently on this now. So so some of our players, we we're talking about who's the best at every position. We're talking about shortstop, and they left Cal Ripken off the list. And I said, hold on a second. I brought his name up, and they said, oh, he was durable, but he wasn't that good. And then I brought it up on Google, like 19-time all-star. Like, oh, we didn't realize yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, he, he wasn't just some guy who was pretty good playing an infield position and uh, the Orioles weren't great during his time there. And so, yeah, sure, he got to be durable, but that's he was awesome. Yeah, he was one of the best shortstops ever. Absolutely. So with, with what we just talked about with how to think about uh, sports performance or, or performing on a baseball field, can you fathom what it took for Cal to do what he did and perform, to your point, at, at such a high level? No, you will never see a, another baseball player do anything like what he did. Um, I don't think you'll ever see a, a baseball player play a, a full season and play every single game. Um, there's a lot of load monitoring that goes into that now. That's a, a catchphrase. You, you're starting to hear it on TV and basketball a lot, but looking at actually how much guys are running in games and um, trying to find ways to measure their their levels of fatigue and that kind of stuff and I mean, the travel schedule, especially at the major leagues, is is so rigorous. Um, guys need days off if you want to keep them healthy. Um, and, and it's it's astounding that he went, I forget, 2,000-something games and never broke down enough to have to, to sit out. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he had some aches and pains, but, yeah, he didn't break down to the point that he couldn't perform. Yeah, and there's another side of that, too. Um, the, the agent's – for the, for the major league players um, have, uh, I think, a little bit more influence. I, I wasn't there working in this league 10 years ago, but um, I had a conversation with, with Jeff Bagwell. He's an advisor to our GM now, longtime Astro, and he was hammering me about why are, why are guys so soft now? You know, they, I don't care if your neck is broken, you should be out there. And um, you know, the reality of it is that, that the agents want to preserve their guys as well. They want them to perform, but but they also want to make sure they're being protected. So there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of stakeholders. Yeah, Bagwell is one of the best uh, Astros of all time. He was part of the Killer Bees back in the day. Yeah, yeah, he's a legend. Uh, he's awesome. And you want to talk about a guy who could uh, all, all the physics you were talking about? He had high numbers on all those uh, units of measurement for sure. Yeah, yeah. When I met him, I kind of laughed because he shook my hand. He said, hi, I'm Jeff. It's like, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> I appreciate your humility. But. Yeah, and he's, he's what, 5'10"? He's not a, a huge guy. No, but he's he's in his 50s, and he is he's still built well. I told him he looks like he could still play, but he said his shoulder's too bad. Yeah, I, I, 
those bodies can't last forever, right? Doing what they do. Yeah. Cool. Uh, all right. So this may feel like a little bit of rapid fire, uh, and you may not want to answer these questions, but who's the funniest Astro? You've been with them about a year, right? Yeah. Um, major leagues, I would say probably Zach Granke or I think uh, Jose Altuve is pretty funny. Yeah, Granke's the only guy that's, I think, in recent memory, that's thrown like a 48-mile-an-hour EFIS pitch. I mean, who does that? <laughs> yeah, I, he was looking forward to um, to being able to hit in the World Series, and he ended up getting two hits. And his first hit, he got on first base and put a puffer jacket on in the middle of <laughs> running the bases in the World Series. I, You see that sometimes in spring training. I, I don't think you see that too often uh, in the World Series. Well, and it was in Atlanta, and, and I get that it's late in the season, but it's not that cold in Atlanta. That <laughs> was like 50. Yeah, it's pretty cold for Atlanta, yeah. yeah. But he has, he has like the most strikeouts in history below 75 miles an hour. <laughs> that sounds right. It's crazy. Yeah. And now Tuvi's got a good sense of humor too, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's a funny guy. He's a really nice guy. Who's the uh, – all right, so is, is he the nicest? I don't want to say that. I'd be taking. I think they're all nice. Most like all of the guys are are fun to be around. They're all yeah, pretty down to earth. Yeah, yeah. Who's the most intellectual? Oh God, I don't know that I've spent enough time with them. To... <laughs> oh, um, I might have to go back to Granky on that. He really enjoys. So he's kind of a, a savant. He really enjoys scouting. So he's not like super involved with our scouting, but uh, I've heard stories that there's been like lists of names and numbers handed to him and, and advice taken. Um, yeah. He's, he's a really smart guy. Right on. Have you met uh, Verlander? I have not. So he was gone uh, this whole year doing rehab. Yeah. But he's still an Astro, right? He is. Yeah. We re-signed him. So I'll meet him in spring training. Yeah. He's from uh, this part of the world. Yeah. I... Goochland. Yeah. He's the pride yeah. of the uh, the Goochland High guys, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the offseason, pretty much everybody disperses, and, and we shut down aside from, like, sending guys programs. Um, and now we're in the lockout, so we couldn't talk to anybody that's on the 40-man rosters right now anyways. And what's the point of that lockout, just to give them time away? No. Um, so there's uh, a collective bargaining agreement between mm -hmm. the league and the players' union. And I think it's every three years that expires and they have to renew it. And so they go through these negotiations. And um, if the negotiations basically don't come to fruition by a certain date, then all communication is ceased. You can't sign players. You cannot have any communication with, with guys on the 40-man rosters. It's like a total blackout until they get that done. All right. What's the best part of your job? Um. Number one is wearing shorts and a t-shirt to work. Uh, number two, to me, it's just helping players get better, watching them, watching them achieve their their potential. I know it sounds cheesy, but that's that's why I do it. Well, so, that's a pretty powerful reason, right? Yeah. All right. What, what's your fondest memory with the Astros so far? Oh, uh, winning the, the ALCS was incredible. And you got to go to the, uh, Boston, right, for those games. Um, so I was 
actually staying in Houston, uh, working on rehab with with one of our players while the team was traveling on the road. Um, I was there for the home games. Yeah, that's tough. So, yeah, you have a – like there are more, more important things that need to be done in Houston than going to the Red Sox game. It's not all glamour. No, no. It's uh, it's all hands on deck. We we have the two major league strength coaches. We also had um, – we bring a taxi squad in the postseason, so like six or seven guys um, from AAA slash majors uh, that are not on the official roster. They're basically reserves, so we bring our AAA strength coach with them. So um, – we don't need four guys on the road, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I had no idea how uh, the world was structured. When I when I had a decent feel for what was happening with uh, major league teams and, and their farm systems, I imagine there wasn't like 30 years ago that none of none of what we're talking about existed, right? No, and it's it's still very uh, different from one organization to the next. The 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 food quality, the or the food food or nutrition budget, the the way the staffing looks, the equipment accessibility, um, it can vary quite a bit from one org to the next. Yeah, I can imagine. And and the ones that want to win, they're investing in all the places they think will help them win. Yeah, I you know, I, my only reservation on that: you take a smaller market team like the Rays that has been very successful, and they've been very creative and in what they're doing and actually just changing the way that they're coaching players and they're sort of revolutionizing baseball in some aspects because of that. So I think everybody's trying to win. It's just um, there are certain problems that you can throw money at and fix them. And, uh, and the larger market teams are able to do that. Yeah. It's, it's always nice to see, look, I'm a, I'm an Astros fan. Uh, I wanted them to win the world series, but it was nice to see uh, the Braves win and, and they're not spending money like the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox uh, or uh, the Padres actually. Oh, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good your team is if you don't have them all in the postseason, And that's, you know, when the, uh, when the pitching rosters shrink, that's uh, it, it's like playing a different team. Yeah, no, absolutely. Tell us about your family. Um, so I have, uh, my wife, Jackie, we met in Richmond, um, in 2014, I think it was, um, she's followed, she's, she's been with me everywhere. She moved with me to Virginia beach, Pennsylvania, back down here. Um, and now we have a dog named Cusco who, uh, when I was with the U S women's national field hockey team, uh, we were at the Pan American games in Lima, Peru, and he was a street dog. Uh, a stray just running around the village trying to get food from people and uh i brought him home so do you know how old he is uh yeah so the vets said when we got him he was about eight to ten months so he's about three years now awesome um i thought he was a lot older than that and then i think what happened was he wasn't very healthy so he was acting a little bit slower more timid and then when we got him healthy uh he exploded with puppy energy yeah, puppy energy is something, man. Yeah. He's never destroyed anything, though. He's always been food motivated, motivated, so he's easy to train. Um, he's honestly one of the best dogs I've ever had. Where'd the name come from? So Cusco is the town right outside of Machu Picchu. Okay. And I would have named him Lima, but that sounded like a girl name. <laughs> and he's not a girl. <laughs> no. Cool. And, well, and Paul, that's, similar, that's similar to your dog, Phil. Because Paul found his what? I'm probably your favorite dog ever in a landfill. 
Yeah, we, we named him Landfill Gilman, and uh, <laughs> he's, he, he's no longer with us, but he signed his name L. Phil Gilman. Was, okay. He was kind of fancy that way. Yeah. Phil. <laughs> F-I-L-L, Phil, yes, yeah, good times. Nice. Cool. Uh, and then you talked about your, your your mom and dad a bit, and you ha have how many siblings? And your brother. This is your yeah. Oldest. yeah, my brother's an athletic trainer. He uh, oversees like 26 schools up in central Pennsylvania, lives in Altoona. Okay. Altoona is like the uh, the mecca of football, right? Oh, I don't know. That's where uh, Sheets, the gas station, that's where Sheets okay. comes from. What, what am I thinking of? Where's Dan Marino, Joe Namath, those guys? Where are they from? Aren't they from Altoona? No, nah, I think oh, that's yeah. – I think they're from eastern, more east in the state. Um, I don't know. Don't hold me to that. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I'm i I'm sure I'm wrong, and I'm also it's not going to listen to Yeah, it's all good. Uh, Al, Altoona is in uh, Pennsylvania. Yes, Yes, it is. You're you're the only other person that says Pennsylvania that I know. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, you've got you've got Philadelphia, you've got Pittsburgh, and the rest of the, the state is Pennsylvania. Yeah, when when we lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we actually lived in Lidditz, just north of the city. It's the highest Amish per capita in the U.S. And I was literally behind horses and, and buggies on my way to work all the time, every day. It's yeah. like, it's wow. like I, people don't believe me, but like normal traffic wasn't a thing. It was Amish country. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. Lancaster is dominated by the Amish. Yeah. No question. All right, Kevin, you want to hit him with the uh, the question that we asked at the end? Yes, sir. All right, Nick. So you are a late night TV host tonight. You have one show and you need to pick a male guest, a female guest, a musical group and a comedian. And this could be someone that's dead or alive, someone from your past, Jesus Christ. It could be anybody. Um, you could be going for ratings or you could be going for just the Nick Shed show that, that you and your family enjoy. Oh, God. Yeah, this, this is meant to be somewhat revealing, Nick. Yeah, I see that. Um, so you said a, a male guest, female guest, a music group, music and a comedian. Group and a comedian. Male guest, Elon Musk. Um, female guest. Oh, hold on, let's back up. Why Elon? I just think he's brilliant. I think he's hilarious. He might actually fit into the comedian category if that was his full-time <laughs> job. Um, no, I, I think he's brilliant regardless of like people's political views, whatever. I think it'd be really interesting to sit down and talk with that guy. Um, female guest. Uh, Malala Yousafzai. I definitely am not saying that right. Um, oh, no, she's the Afghani young lady. Yes. Oh, she's a badass. Yes, she's the one that got attacked by, I think it was the Taliban, and, and been pushing for for women's rights and big-time activists. She, yes, she's a badass. She's, she's a complete badass, uh, has fear of, of nothing. Like, she is just uh, – does what's right, and regardless of uh, what that might do to her. Yeah, it's, she's amazing. See, yeah, that's a great – that's a great I don't know guess. If you've ever seen, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the David Letterman show on Netflix. Uh, my my next guest needs no introduction, but she was on there, and that that's where it sparked. I, I think she's a fascinating person. How many people would be told, "Hey, you need to leave because people are going to probably kill you if you don't." And you're just like, "No, I'm not going to leave." Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah. So her uh, musical group. Well, David's. This isn't fair because David's brother is 
like a, a world-renowned jazz musician. So that's not fair. Um, really? Jared, if you're listening to this, I'm excluding you from this. Yeah, Jared doesn't count because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll put him to the side. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to have to go with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. All right, yeah, nice. You can't yeah. go wrong there. No, they just seem like fun. I don't know. Um, comedian, Bill Burr. <laughs> I love Bill Burr. That's Bill, Burr. Bill Burr has more guts for a comedian than uh, 99% of them. Yeah, I think with the cast I picked, you, you can't watch my talk show if you're easily offended. I don't. There's going to be some some controversial things said there between Elon Musk and Bill Burr. Yeah, as you say, your your first and your last. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic show. Great answers. And by the way, if you haven't heard the helicopter story by Bill Burr, you, you should you should YouTube it. And that's for you guys probably have, but just YouTube helicopter story Bill Burr. It's fantastic. I have not heard that. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, I, I haven't either. All right, so what are you looking forward to the most uh, with the upcoming season? Um, now that I'm going into my second season with the team, I'm looking forward to, to going into it with a, a sense of awareness as to, to what's going on around me. We have a lot of projects, I think, that are going to keep pushing things forward. Um, we take pride in our organization being one of the orgs that's on the forefront of of uh, technology and being able to affect change as far as getting guys to hit balls harder, throw balls harder, et cetera. And I'm, I'm just looking forward to continuing that sort of cutting edge pursuit. And uh, that's why we do it for the competition. Yeah. And to your point, it's really cool to go into your second year because now you have a baseline for what the, uh, the whole ecosystem there is. Yeah. First year was very much um, travel around to the affiliates, and, and just try to get your bearings, get to know the coaching staff, get to know the players. Um, and, and you kind of have to get that global perspective before you can really start affecting change. Very cool. Well, Nick, I'm very glad that Kevin's uh, bus stop buddy is your first cousin. And I'm glad we were able to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, I know Kevin mentioned a, another podcast you were working on and that you're bringing in old guests. So if, uh, if there's ever a need, let me know. Oh yeah, we're all all over that. And by the way, yeah, thanks for the plug for Bumper Night. Yeah. Yes. That's Thank awesome. You, Appreciate that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.